Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the talkie bit. We're continuing our exploration of love today. And because we're exploring something else last week, I, which I really quite enjoyed, I, I, I don't, not all of you were able to be here, but, uh, but I know we've, there's been some conversation, kind of some echoes out of that thing that we did, which I love. I love when that happens. But we were exploring something else other than a sort of a direct examination of this topic of love. So I want to start with a bit of a refresher on what I think is one central idea to this whole endeavor for us collectively, and that's the definition of love that we're working with. So when I was introducing the series, one of the things that felt like it needed addressing was this notion that love is often primarily thought of or regarded in our cultural framework as a feeling. And beyond that, by definition, mostly a feeling that springs from what many of the shared dictionary definitions would call deep affection. And so there's this link in our understanding of the word love and the feelings of deep affection. And that's a really nice idea. It's, it's kind of got all the warm and fuzzies going on. I mean, personally, I like that. I, that's a very pleasant thought. I don't think it's a bad idea either in the sense of, of what a, an aspect of love might be. Um, and I think it's often how we experience what we call love. It's attached to feelings of care, of deep affection for somebody. Now... I don't want to speak for anybody else in the room, but I can safely say on my own behalf that deep affection doesn't always prompt me to act in the most caring ways. That might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but think of it this way. When I feel deep affection for someone, I might tend to treat them in ways that are discernibly caring or kind. So we might sort of see the connection between those sorts of actions and the feelings of deep affection, of care. I might think of them often, I might do kind things for them, I might express my feelings of affection in a variety of ways, I might act in ways that anyone looking at it from the outside would say are loving. So far, so good. But, why is there always this other side? But if I think about how I might act toward others in the process, so people other than that object of my affection, I might see something other than love in short order. So, for instance, how might I behave towards someone that I perceive as a threat to that connection? How might I treat other people around me that I regard as not relevant to the fostering of that connection? Is it possible that I might be legitimately understood as losing my perspective on other matters because of my deep affection for one person in particular? Well, maybe at least on occasion... Um, I can think of any number of songs that suggest that less than rational acts can be accounted for by love. <laughs> uh, love and crazy seem to occur fairly often as uh, partner words in you know, popular music anyway. And that's all without even taking into consideration all the ways that I might act out of self-interest in that relationship or in an attempt to have somebody else return my feelings of deep affection. So there is this, there is this other side to that notion. 
And to my way of thinking, that suggests that most of the common understandings of love are not adequate. And if I want to grow in the direction of being guided by love and how I live my life, I'm going to have to explore a little further. I'm going to have to dig a little deeper. And it was that line of thinking that helped Scott Peck's definition of love uh, as Sheridan Bell Hook's book, All About Love. That's why it caught my eye. So, as we considered previously, Peck defines love this way in, in his book, uh, The Road Less Traveled. He says that love is the will to extend oneself for the purposes of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. And by spiritual growth, Peck means their growth as a wholeness of the person, so integration of body, mind, and spirit, so being a connected whole person. And then he goes on to say this about love. Love is as love does. Love is an act of the will, namely both an intention and an action. We do not have to love. We choose to love. And in that definition, the bit that I'm really focusing on today is this sense. Love is an act of the will, in particular this bit, namely both an intention and an action. So there's an interesting gap in Peck's definition. And it's not necessarily visible at first glance, and even if we look closer, not everybody's going to agree that it's a gap, but I want to point it out for our possible consideration. And that's the gap between intention and action. So there's a fundamental difference between intention and action that's, that's super important when it comes to how we experience one another as human beings and in how we enact the kind of love that Peck is talking about, as well as how we experience what other people might be extending toward us, how we experience other people's actions toward us. And the simplest way that I know how to say it is that intentions are private and actions are public. When I do something, I usually know what my intentions are. At least if I was asked about it, I would be able to say, oh, this is what I intended. And it might, not, it, it might look otherwise from the outside, but I'm not doing things randomly, right? I'm doing them for a reason. I'm doing them with an intention. Now, sometimes my own intentions are complicated or they're not quite clear even to me. That's another matter. But generally speaking, both the fact and the problem is that my intentions are internal. They are matters of the mind, of the heart. But my actions are external. They're public in the sense that they're visible to the other party. And in between those two realities lies the third variable, which we could think of as assumptions. So we, we probably know the saying, when I assume I make an ass out of you and me, uh, we know by being taught or perhaps by having learned on the harder path of you know, our own mistakes that assuming is generally not helpful. We all still do it, of course, for a wide variety of reasons, not the least of which is that assuming is a shortcut. Unfortunately, one of the things that it shortcuts is actually knowing what the person we're interacting with intended, what motivated them to do whatever they did. I want to tell you a little story about how this might look in real life and then we can consider what we might do about it and what that has to do with living life in a more loving way. So two stories, one from this age and one from another age, and then we'll kind of get back to it. So this is a story that I heard a long-time acquaintance tell from some of his early days as a person working with the unhoused population in Toronto. Uh, this person whose name is also Tim. Tim is the kind of guy who would literally like lay down on the tracks for somebody. Like He would, he would just leave it all on the field to help somebody. He's not perfect, as the story will illustrate, but he's got a big, kind heart, and that heart especially beats for people on the margins. 
Now, and this, this matters to the story. This is why I'm mentioning it. Tim looks, I think he'd concur with this description. He looks pretty much like what he is, which is, among other things, an aging rock and roll musician. I think you know this trope. Uh, he's got long hair, not especially, you know, sorted in the office sense of the word or whatever. He's got this ball cap that looks like it's, like it's been mauled by a large cat. He's got a jean jacket that kind of looks the same. He's definitely seen better days. It's not an affectation. Like, that's just how Tim looks. That's how he looks when he shows up to speak to 2,000 people about something. Like, that's just Tim, right? And it's not until you get up close to Tim that you can see his face is all creased with these smile wrinkles. And his eyes are really kind. That's also important to the story. In any case, in the early years of his work with the street community, non-house community in Toronto, uh, and, and I should tell you now that when Tim tells the story now, he also is just like, I can't believe I did this. So just so you know, Tim knows. That'll make more sense as I tell the rest of the story. So he'd been, he'd been out. A lot of his work was during what the HR department would call uncivilized hours, right? Because that's when people are moving around. So he'd been under some parkway bridge or whatever, hanging with his with his people, and he was on his way back to his car to go home. And he had to cross a, a quite dimly lit or mostly unlit downtown park to get to the parkade. And that didn't concern Tim. He felt relatively safe in that space, not least of all because he probably knew everyone that was in the park by name. And also he's a guy, and also he's a white guy, and there's a whole bunch of things that are, you know, he, he knows he's not uniquely vulnerable in that setting. So he's not distressed about it. But as he's entering the park... And just starting his journey across, he sees coming in sort of from the side, probably from one of the nearby office towers, he sees a young woman. She's wearing business attire. She's carrying a laptop bag. And she's kind of cutting into, looks like she's headed for the same parkade. And Tim knows by experience and by research, by training, that statistically that person is more vulnerable in this setting than he is. And he also knows like the grizzly bear principle, you know, like if you're walking close to someone, you're perceived as a group, as one thing, not as individual things. You're less vulnerable. And so he thinks, you know what? If, if we were perceived as walking together, she would probably be less vulnerable. And that's just kind of Tim's, like, what can I do here, right? But he's behind her. So he thinks, I know, people are already nodding. Oh, wait, it gets worse before it gets better. So he's like, I could just, if I just sped up a little bit, I would, you know, I'd be walking closer behind her, and right, we'd, be, we'd accomplish this thing. So he just speeds up a little bit. Well, she can't see him at all. She could just hear his footsteps. So she just hears footsteps getting closer behind her. So she does what I think any reasonable person would do in this setting. She speeds up, too. She's going to keep what she perceives as the safe, safer gap between them, right? And Tim sees that happen. And he's like, oh, she thinks I'm, I'm going to mug her and take her laptop. So she knew that I wasn't after her laptop. Maybe she could kind of relax and you know, she wouldn't feel so stressed. And so he calls out to her, I don't want your bag. <laughs> I know, right? And so, I mean, she looks over her shoulder now to see and sees Tim. That's what I described him. And she just, like, hugs her laptop bag and sprints for the parkade. Tim's like, oh, that did not go as planned. Uh, so here's where the assumption part comes in, right? As humans, when we interact with one another... We are, if we, we think about this interaction as a two-party interaction, we are making two competing sets of assumptions. So as the actor, Tim in this story, the person doing something, we tend to make the assumption as the actor that our intentions will be clearly illustrated by our actions. I mean, what else could wanting to walk closer to someone mean other than I want to offer you whatever I have to offer for your 
safety, and well-being. If you think about Tim's intentions and his action choice, they fit together rather nicely, don't they? Right? So that's the assumption of the actor. On the other side of the story, as the person on the receiving end of the actions, we tend to make the assumption that the intentions of the actor match however their actions look or feel to us. Because what else could it possibly mean when some scruffy guy is trying to catch up to us on the, in the park other than he intends us harm? Because that's how it felt. Right? Which brings us back to Peck's definition and his contention that love is an act of the will, both an intention and an action. If living in a loving manner calls for the application of will, of agency, to both intention and action, but intention is private and easily misunderstood when interpreted on the basis of action, what does love look like? How do we enact it in ways that might help to reduce that gap? And I don't think that gap is a thing that ever goes away just because of how we move through the world as human beings. But what could we do to, to shrink it? Is, it? is it shrinkable, you know? Okay, one more story. This is an ancient one. Uh, the, the account, as far as we can tell, that this is based on was written around 550 BC, uh, BCE and it's retelling events from about 500 years or so earlier than that. So there's general context. Um, the, the setting in which it's recorded is um, the Hebrews are in Babylonian exile. They are prisoners of war. They've been in that setting for such a long time that their displaced location is starting to feel more like home than the home they were displaced from. They're starting to intermarry. They're taking on cultural practices from the people who uh, exiled them there. We talked about this when we talked about the Mesopotamian law code becoming part of the Hebrew law code. That's part of that same story. The story itself that I want to reference is in 1 Samuel 16. So, As with lots of ancient stories, this is a pretty weird one to our contemporary sensibilities. Like, you got to really tweak this one to kind of make a contemporary point out of it in some ways. But let's just take it as we have it. So, short version. In this story, God, who who speaks like Judy would speak to me, as, as is often the case in these stories, right? God tells the prophet Samuel, I don't mean anything by that except proximity, Judy, just to be clear. I, I realized when I saw your reaction, I was like, it was just about voice hearing. That's all. Not, not would you, yeah, not would you please move the, the camera around to suit my, no, none of that. I, uh, I'm thinking a lot about attention right now. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so God's talking to Samuel. That was my whole point. I really, I really went somewhere I didn't intend to with that. So God tells the prophet Samuel that in light of the utter failure of the first king of Israel, Saul, whom Samuel had a direct hand in selecting and appointing, that it was time to just get over it and go find the next one. Uh, In one contemporary translation, the God character says to the Samuel character, quit moping and just go find the next king already. Like Saul's a blowout, you know. So Samuel takes a cow, takes a heifer, uh, more correctly, and uh, because that's part of the ritual. And he shows up in Bethlehem with this, heifer in tow, to see a guy named Jesse because God told him that one of Jesse's kids is going to be the next king. But it's kind of a kid lottery because God didn't tell Samuel which son was going to be the king and there are eight of them. So in what, when you read it, kind of reads like a beauty pageant. Jesse like trots out his sons one by one or an audition or something and by all reports, if looks were the criteria, they were all candidates to, to be king. I don't know if you've ever been struck by this, but there's just as much of a trope around um, 
sort of male tropes of appearance and role in society as there are around other tropes like that that guy looks like he should be a senator like that's a that's a thing you know we can kind of recognize the jaw and the whatever and so apparently that's not new <laughs> that's that's not a new cultural thing and so poor samuel is keeps having in the story he keeps having to have this side conversation with god that kind of goes like this one sure looks like and then god says no nope, not that one and so at one point somewhere in the middle of the, that process in the story God kind of expands on the nope with this. He says to Samuel, looks aren't everything. Don't be impressed with his looks and stature. I've already eliminated him about a particular candidate who gets named in the story, lucky him. God judges persons differently than humans do. Humans look at the face, God looks into the heart. So it's kind of like this little aside that happens right in the middle of this. This one, nope, not that one, back and forth. So to put that into the context of private, public, or intentions, actions, we could say that the divine character in this story tells the human character, if you want to see the world from a divine point of view, then you have to do the work of getting past what you see on the surface. We have to get past public and get into private in the sense that we've talked about it. We have to get past actions and into intentions. And some of you know the story you know the ending, of course. Samuel sees seven of the sons. None of them gets the nod. Samuel asks Jesse, the dad, if that's the whole team. And Jesse kind of grudgingly, uh, I like the way Peterson renders this in the message. Jesse kind of grudgingly says, well, yes, there's the runt, but he's out tending the sheep. And Samuel says, we are not going anywhere till the runt shows up. And the runt turns out to be the kid who becomes King David. And it's kind of a humble hero story at this point in the narrative. God turns ordinary kid into sovereign of the nation and the one who takes Israel to arguably its pinnacle as an historic nation. Because we have the story looking backwards, we know that the King David chapter doesn't end especially well. And that's important in our consideration of how to enact love. Now, just stay with me for a few moments here because I want to connect some dots in a way that you know, kind of makes some leaps. Big surprise. If one aspect of learning how to live love is getting better at closing what I call the intention gap, learning how to get curious about what someone's intentions might have been, choosing to ask them about that before we come to any conclusions about what their actions mean, if that's an important aspect of learning how to live love, then we might have to wrestle a bit with why we might do that because that's not an easy thing to do and it's not risk-free. And it really might not work out the way that we want or hope it to. If we take the story we were just looking at, for instance, God tells Samuel that it's a divine thing to see past the surface and look at the heart, a God-like way of seeing, a God's eye view, if you will. He also tells Samuel that David is the next king, and the story tells us that, quote, The Spirit of God entered David like a rush of wind, God vitally empowering him for the rest of his life. Remember that this whole thing was written down 500 years after the events being described. So it's not like the writers didn't know how the story went. But when I read that sentence in the context of knowing how the story goes, it makes me think if I plug in the Bathsheba thing and then the murder of the husband thing and then the family drama at the end and more death... I kind of feel like maybe the spirit didn't get the mix quite right and he gave David a bit too much vitality and not enough moral compass. You know, like it just, it's just not that great, right? Or maybe, maybe it's more along the lines of even if we could see with divine eyes, 
if we could see the heart of the person and not just their actions and how their actions felt to us. And maybe even if that was the best possible way to extend ourselves on another person's behalf, even if all those things were true, life still doesn't come with any kind of guarantee about how things will turn out. I mean, you could make the argument from this story that that's not even the way it works for God in the story. Spirit fills up David with all his vitality. David does some great things with all that vitality, does some really, truly awful things with it. Hmm. It's not about certainty. It's about trying to figure out the best possible way to proceed, to live, to enact love. When Jesus was pressed to define the divine, to define God, the word that he chooses, as we have the story, is the word love. That's Jesus' word for the ultimate. That's Jesus' word for what we might call reality, for the thing that is there whether you believe in it or not, the thing that's over the horizon for us, that's beyond our typical view. If Jesus was to be the voice speaking on behalf of God in the Samuel story, I don't have any trouble imagining that he might have said something along the lines of, love doesn't see the way we humans usually see. That he would have, he would have treated the words love and God as interchangeable, the way that he did in the Jesus story, where we have him doing exactly that. Love doesn't see the way humans usually see. Humans, we look on the outside, but love looks into the heart, into the things that aren't on the surface. In other words, from our limited perspective, we might say that love extends itself toward the other in an attempt to see beneath the surface, to exercise non-judgmental curiosity, to explore the intentions behind the actions, to see what good might be there, rather than relying on appearances. When I think out loud about these things, like I do in a talkie bit, I am often, I mean, I hope they're of some benefit to you. Thanks for showing up. But honestly, like, I'm, if this is the choir, this, this, is who I, this is who I'm speaking to. This stuff is clearly aspirational from where I live my life. That, that gap between intentions and actions and how they're experienced, oh my word. That gap is there all the time. I would like to think that more often than not, if I was actually able to act in a way that other parties experienced as true to my intent, I would rarely hurt anyone. <laughs> well, not the case. Um, and so I know this is aspirational. And, and that's the context in which I would want to offer this last sentence. If that's a better way to live, the way we've just been describing, extending ourselves in an attempt to get below the waterline, to see the heart and not just judge the actions, then, then that's a way of living that refuses to take the shortcut. Which means that it may be harder but also that it is, we might say, the truer path, the better path, which I would 
take to mean that it is closer to the way that we could legitimately call the way of love. That's all I'm going to say about that. Peace.